Blog Talk Radio. Good afternoon. My name is Jeanette Abney, and I want to thank you for joining me here for another exciting episode here at Precious Predicaments Blog Talk Radio. I'm trying to go back on to Facebook Live because my daughter was fussing at me, telling me that my face was kind of blurry and it wasn't a good look. But I need. I told her I need a new camera because, um, you know, my camera kind of old. I think I got like an iPhone 4, 5, so 6, something like that. They probably on iPhone 15 by now, as far as I know. And I'm still trying to fix this and figure this out. I see you, Joanne, and I still can't get this right. Oop, I dropped the phone. I keep telling her. Won't nobody help me. So I'm here today, and like I said, I want to thank you for joining me. So as I'm trying to get this camera to start acting right because – I do want to start doing things where it's more visual soon. Don't know how long we're going to be doing this so that we can also get it onto YouTube channels. And I'm also going to be um, linking it onto other things. I'm just going to hold on to this, but I'm about to click it off because it's about to drive me crazy. So today's topic, we're going to be talking about addressing self-medicating behavior. And when we start talking about self-medicating behavior, it's like, you know, what is that about? It's interesting we talk about with this coronavirus and what's going on. I hate to say it, but coronavirus is trying to stop us from some of the things that we have been engaging in that have kind of self-destructive. And it doesn't mean that people are not dying. It doesn't mean that people are not getting sick. The problem is we start talking about some of the behaviors that we used to engage in that was kind of self-sabotaging, self-addicting, and self-medicating. One was the casino, going to the casino. We can't do that no more. Hanging out at clubs, we can't do that no more. Going to bars, hanging out at restaurants. So a lot of these things we cannot do. But today's show is designed to address self-medicating behaviors and why such exist. Today, more than ever, our nation is facing a difficult challenge as we're trying to curb this thing when we start talking about addiction to drugs and alcohol. Because the more individuals are staying at home, the more stir crazy they are becoming and are engaging in self self such behaviors and not even realizing it. Now, substance use is secondary to a primary issue. And it has been said that three quarters of Americans are self medicated as a result of a physical injury alone, which some may be abusing some type of substance, whether it's alcohol, drugs, marijuana. So let's talk about it. Now, I have my person that's going to be up with me today on the show. Let me log him on. Good morning. How are you doing? Uh, I'm doing excellent, Jeanette. Thanks for having me on today. Well, I appreciate your short notice and you sending me the bio like 30 minutes before the show starts. See, you know what? We've got to do more shows together because that show we both have bad habits. <laughs> yes, yes, <laughs> absolutely. I'm trying to see what your bio have to say because I haven't even had a chance to even look at it. So I'm going to let you tell the listeners who you are and what is it that you do. Yeah, uh, my name is Brian Vasquez. I am a certified addiction treatment counselor working in private practice in Newport Beach, California. Um, so my day trade is uh, working with individuals one-on-one to help them uh, overcome substance abuse and uh, live a more balanced life uh, free from their addiction. Uh, I'm also a smart recovery facilitator and a friends and family uh, facilitator. 
And for those who are not familiar with SMART Recovery, um, SMART Recovery stands for Self-Management and Recovery Training. And it is a, a free worldwide mutual support group uh, to help people with any problematic substance abuse or behavioral addiction. So you mentioned the, the gambling and the casinos earlier. We're talking about self-medicating behaviors, um, eating, watching TV, pornography, so on and so forth. So SMART Recovery is a free mutual support group uh, for people that are struggling with any behavioral or uh, substance addictions to come meet, learn um, cognitive behavioral tools, rational motive-based tools. And then the Friends and Family Program is for uh, concerned loved ones who um, are trying to work with their loved one who's struggling with the behavioral or substance addictions um, to hopefully modify their behaviors, communicate differently, and primarily to practice self-care for themselves and to get some normalcy back in their lives so they're not completely overtaken by their loved one's uh, problematic behavior or addiction. Um, and you know so, what's yeah, so that's where I... It's interesting you said that you are located in California, and I want to thank you for mm -hmm. contacting me the other day because you called me as part of the services you guys provide for the DOT, which is Department of Transportation, because a lot of individuals don't even realize how much trouble that they can get into when we talk about substance use and understanding or having a clear understanding between the difference of use versus abuse. I tell individuals, I've been in this field for many, many years, and I'm not a recovering drug addict. I kind of was scared of drugs growing up, especially growing up in Compton. And um, mm. I'm looking at my Facebook, and I got this on Facebook Live, and my grand, my grandson said, writer says, hi, Granny. Tell writer, I said, hey. Don't so when we talk <laughs> about these things and we talk about self-medicating, a lot of times individuals are not aware that what we do is we, we all have some type of habit. We all kind of get mm -hmm. used to kind of like a coping mechanism. Now, sometimes it can be healthy and sometimes it can be unhealthy. Now, when you are in, in the field that you're in, I have a question for you. What made you go towards this field? Because mine was purely by accident. I didn't actually do this. What made you want to become yes. a certified addiction counselor? Yeah, good question. Uh, well, I am someone who's in recovery, and uh, I got into primarily marijuana when I was in high school, which transitioned. This is in the mid-2000s, kind of when the opioid epidemic was first stemming, and there was doctor shopping and all that was happening. And then I got into Oxycontin. And to make a long story short, I did a couple inpatient and outpatient treatment programs. Um, I ended up having, you know, relapses. And then I joined the military, the Marine Corps, and while I was in the Marine Corps, I ended up uh, getting arrested trying to purchase uh, a high amount of Oxycontin. I ended up doing uh, just a little under three years um, in the military brig and in the state prison. And while I was doing my time, I came to the conclusion, you know, what do I want to do with my life? My military career is over. And I decided I wanted to get in the field of counseling to help other people because it was such a... For me, it was a very uplifting experience um, seeing where my life had been taken and, okay, what do I want to do with my life going forward? So I decided to get in the field of counseling. Uh, I got out in December of 2011, jumped back into school, and I've been working towards that goal. And uh, I, I love working 
uh, in this field doing counseling, helping people overcome their addictions, problematic behaviors, and finding some some joy and happiness and excitement in life because to me that's what recovery sobriety is all about is having joy and excitement because for me that's what I was looking for through my substance use and now I find that through other avenues. And you know what, and I appreciate your honesty because a lot of times individuals don't realize that just because they join in the military, it doesn't mean that they have basically been cured or healed from some of the things that they've been dealing with in their life. When we start talking about traumas, as even as I was getting this information and putting it together, and I know when we spoke on the phone the other day, we were talking about the coronavirus and with the use of marijuana, and a lot of individuals don't realize that marijuana is a gateway drug for other drugs. And I tell individuals, one of the reasons why I never smoke weed, first of all, because I eat too much, I said if I smoked weed, I might weigh 400 pounds because I already can get the munchies being sober. I don't need no marijuana. That's going to make it worse. I tell individuals I don't drink because I've always had these little violent entities, tendencies, and like people say, I like to fight, and I ain't never really seen a drunk want to fight, so I ain't trying to be, be drunk and be getting beat up. So, and plus, I grew up in a family where addiction was very, very high, and I saw a lot of it, and even when I went into this field, it wasn't something that I said, I want to be a drug and alcohol counselor because I never really understood why individuals did what they did. But then I later learned about addictive personalities and how some individuals are workaholics, some individuals binge drink, some people like to eat, some people have addiction to sex, pornography, a lot of different things. And many times, often, individuals don't understand that there's something underneath a lot of this stuff, and that's where the term self-medicating come from. I remember I have an auntie, she used to say, and excuse my language, I'm going to take my I don't give a damn pill. You know, so whenever stuff was going mm-hmm. on in her life and she wanted to just zone out, that was her way of not having to deal with certain different things. And some older folks used to just call it their medicine. I need my medicine. So when, now that we've taken this term and we start putting it in re, dealing with the, with the recovery, and also I learned that there's a lot of nurses and doctors that have a very high rate or at a high rate of addiction to also prescription pills, and some athletes where they have sustained some type of personal injury. Have you noticed that in your work that you do? We talk about self-medication, individuals that have had predisposed injuries or some type of ailment where they self-medicate with drugs or alcohol? Oh, absolutely, big time. And that's that's kind of how my own personal addiction began with a uh, broken collarbone, a broken clavicle when I was in high school playing football, and that was my first introduction uh, to opiates, getting a uh, prescription for Tylenol uh, with codeine. And um, so, yeah, there's there's lots lots of clients that I work with, primarily opiate-based clients, uh, come in there with, you know, they had an accident, uh, maybe multiple accidents, and depending on the time of year, it's it's starting to get better, and things aren't being prescribed for as long, and in the dosage that they had been in the early to mid 2000s, uh, when it was just unbelievable the amount and the and the uh, milligrams that were prescribed to people but um, that's for the pain so yeah a lot of people come in with predisposition to you know back pain broken bones but then you know when we look at the other medications like benzodiazepines Xanax, Valium, Klonopin 
Uh, those those are prescribed in high quantities as well for you know anybody that's dealing with anxiety or depression or panic disorder. Oftentimes, that's given before any other types of um, you know behavioral changes and cognitive changes. Oftentimes, it's you know here's a prescription for Xanax. Take one of those when you're not feeling well and you're feeling anxious, as opposed to teaching. Uh, alternative coping skills first and maybe using that as a temporary basis um, to help somebody get through a, a particular time while they're working on these behavioral and cognitive strategies to reduce the underlying issues. Yeah. And, you know, there was one way back when I remember I was in a car accident. I think it was in 1991, I believe, or 2001. And the first thing the doctor wanted to do was give me some soma. Lord, the mm-hmm. somas. Yep. <laughs> They had no nightmares. I don't even think I was snoring. But I was scared of them somas. I oh, yeah. said, I'm not messing with them. <laughs> I'm done. It's a wrap. Like alcohol and a you pill. Know? It's like yeah, alcohol and a pill, they call them. It was a happy pill to make you feel good and take away all your pain. But the problem is it becomes highly addictive. And then Absolutely. when it gets to the point, now you know, reach the stage of going from use to abuse, and now we got a problem because our body becomes dependent upon the substance, and then we get in trouble, and that's where we find that individuals go from using and abusing prescription drugs to now using street drugs, and then when they can't get the street drugs, they'll substitute it with either the alcohol or the marijuana, and then you're looking at the behavior. And when you talk about the behavior, the behavior and the time it takes to try to prepare to get it, to go get it, to use it, to come down, it's a whole cycle that individuals go through that they don't even realize it. So my question, and I heard you talk about with the military, when did you reach the point to where you got sick and tired of being sick and tired? Well, I would say that was the moment when I was uh, walking away from the undercover NCIS agent and the Surf City detective who had set up my uh, my bus. Uh, and when all the cars came and the guns came and I was face down on the pavement with handcuffs going on, that was the moment um, I had a little mental epiphany and said, this is it. I, I'm done. And... Uh, North Carolina has mandatory minimum drug sentencing, which, I mean, we could do a whole other podcast on just mandatory minimum sentencing. But uh, as a first-time offender, uh, 22 years old, uh, you know, besides my treatments that I had gone to, I've never had any trouble with the law. Uh, I was winning awards and uh, earning awards in the military. Well, North Carolina, anything over an ounce, and they would weigh uh, prescription medications as if it was pure opium with a mandatory minimum 20-year sentence. So I wow. didn't know how much time I was actually going to be serving until about 11 months into my sentence. So I had quite a bit of time to sit there and contemplate the severity of my situation and where uh, drugs had led me. And that mm-hmm. was the point where I said, okay, I'm, I'm done. I need to choose a different route. This isn't working for me. Uh, This is very temporary happiness, but in the long haul, this is really, really screwing me over all the people I care about and whatever parts of myself that I could be giving and contributing to society is is suffering right now. So uh, I don't recommend that route for everybody, but for me, that is what really turned me around and put me on a good trajectory in life. Wow. And you know what? And I thank you for your honesty and I thank you for sharing because a lot of times individuals don't like to share that part of them and that kind of has a lot to do with who they are and who they became and why they are where they are. 
Like I said, I never asked for this. I never thought that I would be doing this type of work. But by that same token, it kind of, the, my style is in addressing the trauma and addressing the issue behind the addiction to determine and separate this is who you are and this is what you do, which is two different things. And at the end of right. the day, people are dying, and especially when you're talking about mixing drugs and, and whether it has to do with a mental health issue of why you're self-medicating, if it's some type of trauma, if it's some type of stress that you're dealing with, or you're having difficulties addressing your triggers, I just want people to know that help is available and help is out there. Now, I'm about to go off Facebook Live because I'm looking at this and stuff keep popping up on my phone, and I'm getting tired of looking at my big head. So... Let me take you off of Facebook Live, and plus I've got to find some of this paperwork that I had written down for some of the questions, and we're going to do more in, in regards to the show. So if you're looking at me on Facebook Live and you want to get engaged in the show or you want to call in because you have some questions for either myself or Brian, give us a call at 516-387-1914 because I'm so busy looking at this, I forgot to see if we have any callers. We do have callers. Let me log on some of the callers first. Um, hi, this is Jeanette. Welcome to uh, Precious Predicament, number ended in 2-2. How are you doing? I'm doing well. How are you guys doing? I am well. And, you know, Michelle, you was a nurse. And when we started mm -hmm. talking about stressing, self-medicating behaviors, as a nurse and you being in the field that you was in, what were some of the things? you witness in regards to self-medicating behaviors? Well, I was listening to what the gentleman was saying, and basically, you know, I mean, they're getting high on the drugs or whatever, and then, you know, they do, sometimes they do self-injury, manic, you know, up and down, their moods are up and down, um, doing stuff, I mean, like, things like, you know, that you, they normally wouldn't do, if they weren't coming off of a drug or on a drug, um, you know, being abusive and getting into, um, when you're talking about drug, are you talking about just like the marijuana or the oxy or pills and the Xanax and all of that? Or are you talking about alcohol also? All of it is considered and classified as drugs. We have different classifications, but a drug mm -hmm. is a drug. Well, and they all, and usually people make justifications for every reason they do something. You know, and even people that are like, if, I mean, they always justify, you know, I mean, people can justify anyways behaviors, but I mean, right. I've done it before trying to justify it, but, you know, when I'm trying to explain it, but I'm not taking drugs because I don't drink and do drugs and all that, but, you know, it, I've seen it, I've dealt with it, uh, I've known people on it, um, I've adopted kids that parents were that were on drugs. You know, and like the general was saying, how it just, you could ruin your life and you have to make that decision about, you know, what you're going to do. And because, like, when he contacted me, he contacted me for a DOT assessment because there are individuals that have high paying jobs making six digit figures, but yet, if they test positive while on the job, they would have to do a, a DOT assessment. And they also have to go into some type of treatment or educational classes. And that right. can actually them to lose their jobs in some cases. And some individuals are what you call functioning addicts, but they don't want to be considered an addict. Okay, let me log on the other caller, and let me go for Facebook Live in a minute because... 
Yeah, they can do functioning addicts. I mean, addicts can be functioning, you know, but they, most cases with the big jobs, well, it used to be that with big corporations, they would pay for all the treatments and they didn't lose their job, but it just depended on it was the first time or second time. Mm -hmm. This is the thing. If you go to your employer and say, I have a drug problem and I want to get help, they can get you the help. But if you test positive on a random monitor drug test, that's normally zero tolerance. Oh no, then that that's right. You're right, and that's correct. If it's zero, so that and I've seen the same thing. Zero tolerance. I mean, you better go be the first one to bring it up because if you're not, then you know, if you're done. I mean, it's the same thing with my job. You know, if they go and test me or whatever, even if the doctor put me on when my husband passed away and he put me on Valium, you know, I made Mm -hmm. damn sure that my people knew that I was on it. Because I was not going to get Doug trusted and, oh, well, she's on Valium, she's on this, she's on that. You know, because also certain drugs can, a combination of certain drugs can also trigger a false reading mm-hmm. drug test. That's true. Well, Leroy, I see you just came on the Facebook Live, Leroy, so you probably need to call in because you also have been in this field as a therapist and also working with individuals that have drug and alcohol problems and how it affects different persons personalities, behaviors, and things of that nature, especially with domestic violence. So, Leroy, give us a call, 516-387-1914. Now, someone logged in, number ending in 09. Welcome to the show. Do you have anything you would like to say, any questions, or add something as we're talking about this topic today? Well, a lot. Um, both, both, uh, both, they have... I don't know. Okay. So, okay, I have a question for you because I know who this is too. This is Michelle. Michelle, we talk about addressing self-medicated behaviors. And when we start talking about these behaviors, and now that our country, you know, we're facing this pandemic, many are self-medicating with drugs and alcohol even more because they're either bored, they're dealing with a lot of different things, and as other self-medicating behaviors have been disrupted, like we talked about going to the casinos, restaurants, gyms, clubs, being a workaholic, which I'm still sitting in the office, still a workaholic, they're also an issue that we have when we talk about the use of marijuana and how marijuana is causing a lot of health concerns as it is related to this coronavirus. Now, when I was looking and I was getting some information, and it indicated that according to sources, it said that the coronavirus virus has basically the marijuana commerce across North America has been disrupted. I'm going to ask you, Brian, have you heard about that? Uh, the disruption. Yeah, so, you know, I was, I was doing some research as well and seeing that the sales had been up compared to last year from January, mm-hmm. February, and the first half of March and have now started to decline primarily probably with people uh, having the stay-at-home orders and, you know, buying more bulk of their marijuana products and turning more towards edibles to last them long yeah. so they don't have to come in. So sales are, are still up uh, compared to last year, just not at the trajectory that they had anticipated. But sales are still up, and some of the companies have had to lay people off and cut back in their mm-hmm. staffing and cut back in production as well with social distancing. So mm-hmm. um, overall, the sales are still up, but they're just not mm-hmm. the trajectory that they had anticipated uh, based on Correct. earlier months of the year. When we start talking about addressing yeah. self-medicating behaviors and individuals now, and once we see the spike in this 
home because no matter what, we start talking about child abuse, domestic violence, those issues are also on the rise too as what we're experiencing, we're going through. But by that same token, when we start talking about self and we start talking about medication, you know, normally if you're sick, you're trying to find something to cure or treat your symptoms. And the behaviors are normally the things that people are doing and the way they're responding and the way they're they're reacting. So when we start putting this all together, what are some of the ways your program, what do you guys do or how do you address these types of behaviors when we're talking about self-medicating? Yeah, well, that's a great question, Janet. So, you know, primarily when I, when I think about self-medicating behaviors, I'm kind of looking at what the individual is trying to do. And what we're all trying to do is escape discomfort. So we're trying to uh, yeah. alleviate the discomfort that we're feeling either uh, internally, or, uh, mentally, or physically. So mm-hmm. we're trying to figure out, okay, what is the discomfort that we're trying to escape? Is it boredom? And let's just use boredom, which is probably one of the primary ones that most people would say initially led them into their substance use. Um, Escaping boredom, kind of figure out, well, the mind's going to tell you there's nothing to do but drink. There's nothing to do but smoke, which really is a fallacy. There's thousands of things that somebody could do, but that's what we tend to hyper-focus on. So coming from a cognitive and behavioral methodology, we want to first start uh, addressing the cognitive distortions that the individual is having and trying to form new thought patterns and new ways of looking at reality from a rational, realistic perspective. So addressing the cognitive components, challenging those thoughts, finding yeah. more practical, helpful thoughts is the first step. Now, of course, all this takes time. We didn't fall into our addiction overnight and have one drink of alcohol and suddenly develop a uh, alcohol use disorder. Same thing with our thoughts. It's going to take time to start working with the individual, addressing those self-defeating thoughts, and then integrating new behaviors. Just having a thought of and you know what, component. too, and, and also addressing your core beliefs is- because some individuals don't believe that drugs or alcohol could be a problem because they view it as a lifestyle. Until that lifestyle starts catching up with them and they start getting into trouble, either at work with the courts, it's affecting their employment, you know, their relationships, and sometimes even their health. A lot of times individuals Mm -hmm. are not really willing or ready to even address it. I always say we start talking about addiction and addictive behaviors. I tell them, even to stop anything, you have to be consistent. I need some of you to check your background noise because I can hear a lot of background noise. So if you want to mute, please mute so that we won't be hearing a lot of the background noise. I appreciate it. But resist, refuse, and be consistent is one of the things. And also know that there is help available. So, again, I'm going to go on Facebook Live. If you want to listen, continue to listen to the show, please click on your link. You can listen. If you want to call in, 516-387-1914. If you have any questions for myself, Jeanette Abney, or for Brian, we're going to give you some tips and tools of how to maintain your sobriety, what to do if you are even thinking that you are self-medicating, or do you really need this drug, and are you using it or are you abusing it? So let me get off of Facebook Live. I appreciate that. Because I couldn't find my little paper. Can you tell me how to... how do you get onto the Facebook Live? Because I've never done that. All right. Well, yeah. 
you go to Facebook Live just by going onto Facebook, and when you go to Facebook, there's a picture, a little link that you click, and it says live, and it'll start recording you. So well, that's how you do that. Me, oh, but I mean, just okay. to, to listen to you, so it, will it automatically do it? Or do I have to hang up and call back in or something? Oh, you don't have to do that now. If you just go to my page later on today, you could just look at my um, look at it, and you can hear it. So, Brian, when we started talking about rehab, and there's different types of treatment modalities that I always explain to individuals, because sometimes when we start talking about addiction, addiction is real, and addiction is a disease. Let me log on. We have another caller. Give me one second. Hi, this is Janine. Mm-hmm. Welcome to this number ending in 5-2. How are you doing? Oh, it's Linda. I just called to listen in. <laughs> okay, no problem, Linda. Okay, so we start talking about the different treatment modalities. We have the highest of the highest, which is a medical model detox. We also have a social model detox. In addition to a social model detox, we have um, residential, we have um, intensive outpatient services, and we also have where people can do what's called IO, well, the IOP, it's kind of the same, and then we have where individuals can just do an outpatient program, or some individuals do AA and RNA meetings, and, you know, where they're either working the steps or they're not working the steps. Now... Brian, when we start talking about these different treatment modalities, how does a person know what's going to work for them? Because I heard you say that you have been through recovery and different types of treatment programs. How do they know what's going to work? Um, Well, that's a good question. Sometimes through trial and error or speaking with an individual. So whenever I, uh, you know, get a phone call from a new client, um, I'll do a brief, you know, phone assessment with them to see what their goals are, uh, what they're currently taking, what levels they're taking, how long they've been taking it, how it's interfering with their life. Um, you know, each person and each situation is going to be unique and kind of go on a case-by-case scenario. Um, like you mentioned, there's multiple different types of treatment, and there's no one right way or wrong way to do it. It's whatever's going to work for the individual. The, the concept that, you know, if you've been drinking for three months and, you know, you just got a DUI, that you have to go into residential rehab or you have to go into a medical detox program. That's not necessarily true. There's, there's countless ways of finding and seeking recovery, and really it's a, personal, it's a personal decision. And a lot of people don't know. They don't know what the options that are available for them out there. So speaking with someone like myself, a substance abuse professional, and getting some information, and then you know, I work with the client to help them find what's going to be best for them, whether that's working with me on an outpatient, um, you know, one-on-one process, whether that's doing something like an IOP, which is intensive outpatient, typically in a group setting, you know, three times a week for three hours. There's so many different modalities that it really depends on the individual, what's going on in their life, what they're looking for, uh, what resources they have, their insurance, their, um, you know, their cash on hand, pocket, you know, all of those things go into it. Uh, there's three mutual support groups out there. I mentioned smart recovery. There's, of course, the 12 steps. There's life ring. There's refuge recovery. There's, there's a whole bunch of available resources out there for either social groups um, or for individuals, uh, whether you're going to a hospital to be medically detoxed, uh, a residential house to be medically detoxed. 
you know, there's no cookie cutter answer on, you know, if this is what you're dealing with, this is the direction that you need to go. It's really a personal decision in finding what's going to work best for that individual based on their lifestyle and primarily based on their goals, what they're looking for as an individual. Because forcing somebody into some type of treatment that they're not resonating with is not going to give them the highest probability of success. So working with the individual to come to their own conclusion, yes, this is what I think would be helpful for me, is to me paramount and primary because we want the individual to be engaged in whatever, whatever form of recovery or treatment that they're interested in doing. Um, and oftentimes talking with the family members as well, you know, if this is an adolescent, if this is a you know, an adult that's married and has kids or, you know, a grandparent, each situation is going to be unique. So talking with them and figuring out what, what they're gravitating towards gives me an idea of where to refer them to and what treatment would be best, most helpful for them in their circumstances. Mm-hmm. You know, even it, as a therapist, I always ask clients what worked for you, what didn't work for you, because most of the time they're their best advocate. And now that we have been looking at trauma, trauma has been a real good indicator of why some individuals are self-medicating. And we start talking about their traumas, their stress, you know, how old were they when they first started using, because sometimes it's not always that easy to just stop. Even though their family members may want them to stop, but it's not always the case. So you have to address some of those things because we talk about stress, anxiety, and mental health, and even depression, and family history of addiction, if a person is enduring some type of abuse, if they're in a violent relationship, or even if they're unhappy in their relationships, sometimes these things play a factor. And like you indicated earlier, sometimes things work, sometimes things don't work. It's a trial and error. But I want the listeners to know out there is you don't have to give up. Michelle, do you have any questions? I'm talking about Michelle Middleton. Do you have any questions for the um, for Brian or either myself? Yeah, you, you know, there's a lot in there that I – like, if it's me, I mean, I got much more, but, um, you know, like, like, I know some things I, 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 I do want everybody to know because, you know, like you said, like you said, you know, you can stop and it's really hard, you know, to, to not, especially with, my 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 history and everything and um and it's hard like yesterday was you know um easter and i'm I'm like okay no i gotta stop i gotta stop like you know because i i I stopped for like four four years or you know and then i just picked up again and i don't even know why and listening to brian and and um and the other michelle like like, because I, I, I see a lot of hers, too, that I see myself in. And, like, like for me, um, what is it, um, the 12 steps and all that, that doesn't work. But I have to really get down and talk to God 
because I'm going to lose my mom, you know, and I, I have my daughter and everything, and I don't want to do that, you know, and it's just, it's just hard, it is, it's uh-huh. really hard, you know, and I, you know- I think more, more so myself. I need to get back into therapy, like, once a week. But now I'm, I'm looking at the world like, God, how can I even do that? I can't even do that because we're, we're not supposed to be around anybody, you know. And I just I have to pray to God, you know, because I've done it once before and I can do it again, mm-hmm. you know. And you know, and you know what, Michelle? And the thing is, and and I hear sometimes that you've called me where you go back and forth, back and forth, back and forth, and a lot of times, and I've shared with you about how you are self-medicating. It's like sometimes we put a bandaid on a on a well, we we put a bandaid on something where we may need um, a, a tourniquet, or we may need to either you know let some people go out of our lives or change the way our lives is going. And a lot of times that's scary for some people if that's what they are used to. Now, Brian, in regards to what she's saying, because it sounds like she has a lot to lose and yet she's still struggling, but yet she's still engaging in self-medicating behaviors and still using from time to time. Yeah, you know, um, thanks for sharing that, Michelle, and I'm, I'm sorry you're going through that. I know it's a challenging time. Um, yeah, it's it's not – we're not necessarily rational in our perspectives because we're trying to deal with the temporary discomfort that we're feeling in the moment, and it's hard to look at the long term. You know, when we're using substances, it's immediate gratification. And smart mm-hmm. recovery, they call it the pig. P-I-G, the problem with immediate gratification. Well, it makes you feel better temporarily, but it's causing long-term distress and long-term problems. The difficulty in switching the mindset from immediate gratification to long-term gratification is we're not getting the reward in the moment. So we're having to learn how to deal with this comfort in the moment, becoming comfortable feeling uncomfortable in the moment in order to set ourselves up for success in the future, which is very challenging because we're not getting the immediate fix of feeling differently in the moment. It takes time. It's a slow evolution. And, you know, Michelle was mentioning that with this quarantine and and wanting to get back to therapy that, you know, you can't be around people. Well, you know, the kind of the healthcare field is, is shifting, and this is really propelling that shift the telehealth services where you can mm-hmm. you know, meet with clients either over the phone or uh, via secure uh, video sessions. So I can still sit and, and meet with my clients, whether we're meeting in office or whether I'm at home and they're at home. So there is still help available out there, Michelle, uh, meeting with professionals like myself um, from your home uh, on video and phone sessions. And then all of the mutual support groups have also transitioned over to video groups. So I know twelve steps. I know smart recovery. Um, they're holding multiple meetings a day online, where you can still get that support, that feedback, uh, build that social support network and sober support network. So there are still resources out there and treatment centers. I know of you know some are are shifting, but a lot of treatment centers are still accepting clients during this time um, and monitoring for anybody that might have a uh, you know contracted uh, coronavirus. 
So there is still a lot of support right now available for everybody out there. I just want to really uh, emphasize that for telehealth and uh, video, video and video. I'm sorry, video and phone sessions. Mm-hmm. Okay. And you know what? Okay. You can also call two one one, and if you have insurance, you can contact your insurance provider. And I also want to read to you. There's some information that I received, and it's from the American Addiction Centers dot org, and they indicate you can call eight eight eight. Eight three two seven six zero three, and what they indicate is that in the United States, around one out of every ten people who are at least twelve years old abuse illicit drugs, and it led up during the and this was just back in two thousand and fourteen, so that was six years ago, and this was through the National Survey on Drug Use and Health, which is probably increased now, and these statistics show that twenty seven million American adults were considered to be current illicit drug users, while nearly 140 million were alcohol consumers. And I find it interesting how we also choose our poison. Now, there are many reasons that people turn to drugs and alcohol, from social pressures to a desire to feel a certain way to curiosity, and people may also use drugs or alcohol because of a desire to escape reality, relieve stress, forget a trauma, physical or emotional discomfort, manage side effects of other drugs or medication, or try to reduce symptoms of mental illness. And that is where the term self-medicating is used when substances or drugs or alcohol are used to mask these symptoms, and especially symptoms of mental health. Now, when we start talking about masking, I'm going to go back to you, Michelle, because I hear your sincerity and when you break down. What do you think you're trying to run from? What are you running from? A lot. You know, it's starting with myself, with um, Bill, mainly um, that 15 years. Well, actually, not really 15 because I haven't been with him for like four years, five years. But we went from that to Alyssa and then... Other things that I thought it could have been her, just all of it, uh-huh. you know. Something and the I thing is, don't you know, say. that's where you will benefit from going to therapy. But you gotta do the work. You got to do the work. And then once that changes, then that will become your new high. Now, there are different types of psychoactive substances that may be used for various reasons when self-medicated. I'm going to give you some examples. Stimulant drugs like cocaine, methamphetamines, attention deficit disorders or ADHD medications. you got Ritalin, you got Adderall, and that is to increase focus, attention, and energy level as well as for combating depression and increasing pleasure. We have what's yeah. called the nervous system depressant, like alcohol, benzodiazepines, Valiums, Ativan, Klonopin, Xanax, and prescription sleep aids, Ambien, and these are to elevate moods, escape reality, and increase sociabilities, and help a person sleep and decrease anxiety. We got the only drugs. Hold on. What if you're like me that would do anything and everything? Like, well, because more of a poly substance user. And then we have the opiate drugs like heroin and prescription pain relievers, oxycontin, yes. fentanyl, yeah. morphine to relieve pain, depression, and anxiety, and enhanced relaxation. 
and then marijuana to alleviate mood, enhance relaxation, and create a break from reality. We got both yeah. prescription and illicit drug abuse may be abused for the purpose of self-medicating, and anyone who suffers from any form of physical or emotional discomfort may do so. And, Michelle, you asked the question of what about a person like you, and I talked about polysubstance use, and sometimes people use what's available. But then we have some individuals that they are hell-bent on, I will not do this, you know, because some people that use heroin don't drink. Or some people that drink don't use heroin. Some people that smoke weed don't do methamphetamine. You know, so people have their choice, and that's where we go back to choosing their poison. Any comments you want to make, Ryan, in regards to that? Yeah, that's just a a really good point. You know, everybody has their uh, unique genetic makeup where they're going to gravitate towards something specific, uh, typically. Um, you know, like for my, myself, you know, I gravitated towards opiates and depressants. You know, I was not someone that went towards stimulants. And then there's others who gravitate towards stimulants and do not want to do opiates. And then, of course, as things progress, you start getting introduced to more substances and kind of using what's available as your addiction progresses down the line, you can start going, oh, actually, maybe I do like stimulants a little bit, or maybe I do like this other substance that somebody's introduced to me. So there can also be just what's available, uh, what you're able to get your hands on to help you alleviate that discomfort. Mm-hmm. And, you know, growing up in Compton, I used to always say that, you know, and I tell my clients that if somebody ever says genetic overdose, that's a lie because I'm not using drugs. But I was always, I learned from doing the classes, I was afraid of being a crackhead. Crackheads are scary mm-hmm. to me. Even though they're funny, even though they seem like they just be enjoying life, I saw so much drugs growing up. I was like, uh-uh, and I learned it was my fear. But sometimes people, yeah. what they say don't do or won't do is what they will gravitate towards. Yeah, yeah. Now, I have some other information I want to share, and this information is in the relationship between trauma, environmental stressors, and substance abuse, which kind of brings us back to what's going on today. Because something that encourages a person to turn to drugs or alcohol for a respite is called a trigger or stressor. And these are different types of people. A trigger or a triggering event may be something big, like losing a job, getting a divorce, or the death of a loved one. Now, because so many individuals are so afraid of what's going on with the coronavirus, some individuals are smoking weed, and they're saying that with marijuana, it could also have something to do with weakening your immune system. You know, some individuals are talking about drinking alcohol. You know, um, it could also affect your, your, your organs, your livers, your kidneys, and stuff like that. Now, there's this big debate in regards to that because a lot of individuals are saying, no matter what, I'm going to smoke my weed or I need a drink, I'm stressed out. But that is not going to make the situation any better. Now, when we start talking about these different things, and also like funerals, I used to always say, Brian, when you go to a funeral or you go to a birthday party, even kids' party, you find more drugs and alcohol than you find Kool-Aid and candy and cake. Mm-hmm. Socialize. We learned that it was socially acceptable until it gets out of control. Any yes. comments, Brian? 
Yeah, you know, um, getting out of control, and and the thing that you mentioned earlier about the uh, the marijuana, or people saying, you know, I'm nothing's going to change. I'm going to smoke my pot, or I'm going to have my drink. You know, that's really um, kind of client-centered therapy and meeting the client where they're at. You know, if somebody comes to work with me for opiates and they are determined that they're going to continue to smoke cannabis. You know, I meet them where they're at. I'm not here to tell anybody what they should or should not be doing. That's each individual person's uh, decision. And so if somebody wants to continue using something, you know, no evidence and no, um, you know, uh, showing them how this can lead to future problems is going to convince them that they need to stop. Each individual needs to come to that conclusion on their own. And by meeting with a counselor, you know, you might start having some realizations that maybe this behavior isn't getting me where I want. So really building some goals and saying, is what you're currently doing right now helping you get where you want to go? Are the thoughts that you're currently having right now helping you achieve the goals that you've set for yourself? Have you even set any goals for yourself? So really doing some introspection and taking some time to see where am I at and where do I want to go? And it's what I'm currently doing right now helping me achieve that. And it's not to say that somebody can't have some alcohol or somebody can't smoke some pot or somebody can't take that clonopin that's been prescribed to them by their doctor for whatever reason. Mm-hmm. It's looking within yourself and saying, is this becoming problematic Am I being held up somewhere? Am I not achieving what I would like to be achieving? Am I not connecting with people the way I want to be connecting with people? And if there's possibly another way of thinking and another way of behaving that can get me where I want to go. Mm-hmm. And, you know, and I like that thought. And we have another caller calling in, and I'm going to log them on in a minute. And I also want to say, because we're talking about what we are experiencing with the coronavirus is a lot of first responders, a lot of military personnel are also dealing with this when we start talking about addressing self-medicating behavior because they're under a lot of stress too. Because military members are not only people to experience PTSD for extreme stress, however, as anyone with exposure to traumatic events may be at risk. The homeless population is another one. For example, may be at high risk for self-medicating, perhaps because of high stress and attempts to coping with living on the street due to untreated medical or mental illnesses. So that's something, a whole other topic that we don't even address. Because I've had clients tell me that they were self-medicating because they were homeless and living on the street, and that was their way of keeping warm or feeling safe. Mm. Let me log on this next caller. Hi, this is Jeanette. Welcome to Precious Particulars, number ending in 31. How are you doing? Okay, I guess they just want to join, but don't want to say anything. Okay, number ending in 31. I just logged you on. Do you have any questions for myself or for Mr. Bryan? Okay. Linda, I know you've been on listening, and you're also in the field of helping um, individuals. Linda, do you have anything you want to share? Um, I use your approach when it comes to substance abuse. I really like what the the male is saying about um, it's a quick fix. You know, mm-hmm. we gotta look more into the into the long into the long term fix. What's gonna help you in the long run, not what's gonna help you right now in the next five thirty minutes. You have to learn mm-hmm. the the coping strategies to use here and now. Right now that I'm triggered, what can I do? What are my outlets? And I think a, um, 
a strong aspect to that is going to therapy because therapy, you're going to go into the root of the issues of why you're using and where that's coming from. You kind of have to connect your, you know, if your substance a downer, if your substance is an upper, you know, why are you using uppers? Why are you using downers? What is your trauma? What are you trying to block out? What are you trying to avoid and not feel? And sometimes people use substances because they don't want to feel the emotions. So you're going to learn, you're going to have to learn how to feel. It's okay to, okay to be scared. It's okay to worry. You're going to learn how to, how to sit with that. And through therapy, it, it, you can find some enlightenment in that and some peace. And you need a, a, a big support system, a huge support system. And I know we're social distancing right now, um, but there's a lot, of, a lot of support online. There's a lot of phone calls. There's a lot of resources online right now. Mm-hmm. Now, I have some information, and it's from addictioncampuses.org, and it says five signs you may be self-medicating. Even though we know that self-medication is a response to tough issues, self-medication happens when a person turns to prescription drugs, illegal drugs, or alcohol to deal with situations they find hurtful, stressful, or emotional. I like that. Hurtful, stressful, or emotional. And Imagine a situation where self-medication occurs. We know things happen. We know that what we're dealing with right now with the pandemic is happening. We know that individuals are afraid because they're losing their jobs. We don't know if family members are sick. So we kind of went into all of that. And when we start talking about when we turn to something, we I like the old saying go that the high is a lie. But I'm going to give you some information it talks about. When you become stressed, depressed, angry, anxious, or uncomfortable, If you drink or get high, you may be self-medicating. If your moods and mental well-being worsens from drinking or getting high, you may be self-medicating. Also, if you worry when you can't get drunk or get high and you're worried about it, that is also definitely a problem that you're self-medicating. Or your problems just keep growing. That is also a problem, meaning so you originally began drinking or using to get rid of some of your problems or pain or personal stressors, but the list of issues keep growing, meaning ongoing drugs and alcohol abuse have been known to create a lengthy list of its own problems, including difficulties at work or school, financial struggles, relationship problems, anxiety, depression, and other mental health symptoms, difficulty in finding joy low self-esteem, confidence, physical health problems. Another one is if your loved ones, families, and friends are concerned about you drinking or using, sometimes they kind of figure it out too. And also when we start talking about dual diagnosis, in regards to some of the information that I just shared, Brian, what do you want to add to that in regards to um, coming up and identifying if you are a candidate? Yeah, those are good. Those are all good indicators for someone that's maybe on the fence and and is unsure if they are uh, going into the realm of problematic substance use uh, or behavior. Because uh, you mentioned, you know, trying to avoid the discomfort, all of those things. You know, we could also tie in um, binge watching. You know, spending hours mm-hmm. in front of the TV, spending hours on online. Um, all of these escapes from reality and the things that we're trying to avoid that we might have to deal with, which starts 
bringing up even more discomfort, which then you have to continue to use more of your substance to alleviate that discomfort in the moment. Um, I think most times we're, we're obviously the individual is going to be the best judge for themselves, whether or not they're mm-hmm. in those waters. And family members and friends and coworkers can be good um, indications as well. People have been mentioning things to you. People have been concerned about you. Have you been missing obligations? How are you just feeling overall? Are you feeling uh, a lot of discomfort throughout the day internally and physically? All of these things are going to point you in the direction, but I think most of the time, you know, we have a pretty intuitive sense within ourselves if we're starting to use something that's not helpful for us. So, you know, we find what they call relapse justifiers or permission-giving thoughts, <laughs> the thoughts that give us permission in order to keep using. I know I probably shouldn't be having another drink tonight, but, you know, I'll just have another one. I'll, I'll start working on that tomorrow. And, of course, tomorrow mm-hmm. is always tomorrow, right? So starting to watch the thoughts and, and analyzing, you know, self-awareness, mindfulness are like the first components because oftentimes these thoughts are automatic. We can't take responsibility for an automatic thought. The thought just pops up into our mind. It's what we do then with that thought, and the awareness is the first component, awareness that you're having that thought, and then that gives you the choice. Okay, now I have the choice. Do I build this thought and go down that path, and where does that keep taking me, or do I want to start making a choice to redirect my thoughts and start having a new thought and challenging this old habitual way of thinking and behaving? And, and that is a challenge, and that's where therapy and counseling can be so helpful and effective in helping mm-hmm. you identify those thoughts, develop a new way of challenging those thoughts, because there's tons of tools to help challenging these automatic thoughts and forming a new pattern. And the more we start becoming aware and redirecting our thoughts and focusing on something different, the more we're starting to change those neural pathways and form new behaviors and patterns of thinking but it's all very incremental. So, so starting small, that's one of the big things that I always suggest to everybody if you're mm-hmm. unsure where you're at. Try starting small with something that's, that's very minimal. You know, if you're drinking a six-pack every night, can you, can you take that down a little bit? Is there something else that you could do during the day that might be helpful for you that might make you feel uh, better about yourself going for a little walk? Where can you start making small incremental change to get some momentum moving? Because, at those mm-hmm. earlier stages, we're really fighting against inertia, and we're, it's like pushing a stalled car is an analogy I've heard in my life. You know, when you first start to push a stalled car, it takes a lot of effort. You're having to work mm-hmm. against inertia, but once you get the wheels rolling and you start moving that car, then you just kind of have to steer it. It's the same thing with making changes behaviorally and uh, mentally. It's, it's that initial inertia, which is very challenging forming a new behavior and a new pattern because it's something different. And so it takes time. So finding small incremental things that you could start doing and integrating those into your daily life to build that momentum. Got you. And I always tell people it's always one day at a time. And um, you don't want to bring up and start all these big old goals. But And then there's a difference when you're trying to do it on your own also if you're also being court-referred. Because when individuals are mm. court-referred, they kind of become resistant and they don't want to be told what to do. And they feel like they're giving up something. But I want to give the listeners some information, and it's coming from WebMD.com, and it talks about tips to, to help you stay sober. One is stay out of risky situations. Build a support network. Support is very, very helpful. 
find a peer support group. Like we said, because we are quarantined, we're homebound, you can go online, you can go to Zoom. There's a lot of different ways of finding support. Manage your urges. And that was kind of something you were talking about, Brian. And find an activity that means something to you, meaning when you get rid of one habit, pick up another healthy habit. Learn to manage your stress and learn to relax. When you learn how to relax, that's why even with residential, they give you yoga, they give you, you do meditation, reading, nature walk, a massage, a bath, music, breathing exercises, and manage your physical pain is what you need to do because you can retell your story. And when you start talking about retelling your story, don't let nobody throw up in your face and tell you who you used to be, what you used to be, because once you've changed, even if they don't accept your change, that's your business. Brian, what do you want to leave the listeners with, and how can they find you if they want more information from you or about signing up to um, receive services from you? How will they find you? Yeah, so uh, listeners can check out my website, which is realize, R-E-A-L-I-Z-E, dash recovery.com. So realize-recovery.com. Uh, you can learn out the services that I provide and all of my contact information. Uh, and I also would like to point the, the listeners to smartrecovery.org, smartrecovery.org. Uh, tons of resources on there that uh, address all of these topics that we were just discussing, what type of coping skills, how to challenge self-defeating thoughts and behaviors. Um, they have a whole toolbox. They have articles and essays. They have a podcast. They have online meetings. It's, a, it's got tons of information coming from a scientific standpoint and from a standpoint of empowering individuals. So it's very uplifting and motivating. And then, like I mentioned, they have the Friends and Family Program as well for loved ones um, to best support their loved one who's struggling with problematic substance use or behavioral addictions. Um, and I, I welcome any uh, emails or conversation and to help point people in the right direction based on their preferences and what they resonate with. Of course, you know, no one thing works for everybody, but something works for everybody. So finding what you resonate with, what you connect with, and what's going to be most helpful for you is paramount. Correct. It's kind of like what works for you. That's like going to the gym. Going to the gym don't always work for me. So I got to curb my little Absolutely. eating. You know, you got to find whatever's going to work and just do more of it. So mm-hmm. I want to thank you for joining us here at Precious Predicaments Blog Talk Radio. And I want to tell my Aunt Lizzie, I appreciate your input. Hopefully we did better. And I also want to tell my other Auntie Shana, happy birthday. I'm not going to give you age out there, but I do want to tell her happy birthday. Now, on Tuesdays is when we do the show from the pulpit to the couch where you will receive biblical teachings from either a pastor or a biblical scholar and myself, Jeanette Abney, a licensed marriage therapist. Pastor didn't give me a topic, but I got a book sitting right in front of me that I'm going to talk about. And it's called Comfort for Troubled Christians because sometimes we need to know that everything's going to be all right. So we're going to talk about comfort and what does that mean for the troubled Christian. So you can call in if you want to call in, 516-387-1914. And, again, thank you for joining us here at Precious Predicaments Blog Talk Radio. And thank you very much, Brian. I appreciate you. Bye-bye. Thanks, Jeanette. Bye-bye. Thank you.